Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with expert knowledge from professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Today I'm joined by Dr. Max Sherman, who is an expert researcher in building science, specializing in ventilation, indoor air quality, and energy efficiency. And today we're going to talk about the role of HVC, HVAC in improving air quality and removing air pollution. Welcome, Max. Thanks for joining the show. How are you? I'm great. Glad to be here. So I think the best way to get to know you is if you um, introduce yourself a little bit. So um, do you want to sort of talk about um, your work and who you are? Sure. So I'm a researcher in uh, building science. I, uh, I'm actually a PhD physicist, uh, got my degree at Berkeley and started working in the field long, long time ago. I address all sorts of issues having to do with buildings mostly with what we call the indoor environment. That's great. I can't wait to get into that. But first, we'll get to know you a little bit better with um, Have You Met Max? Um, so uh, what kind of things do you read? Well, I read a variety of things. I, I'd say I read sort of three very different categories. One, of course, is reading for work, you know, uh, articles, papers, journal articles. Uh, that, that's business reading. And then uh, for fun, I read uh, junk, you know, things like science fiction and mysteries. And I like things that are that are uplifting, where sort of you feel good at the end after after reading it. And then I also like to read a lot of uh, nonfiction, to learn about the world, even the stuff that I'm not an expert in. So I read a lot of that kind of thing. I think that sounds like a great mix because you want some things you can learn from, but then also some things that help you escape and um, are just enjoyable and keeps keeps reading enjoyable as well. Um, are there any movies that you like? So I, I don't go to a lot of movies anymore. These days you can see almost anything that you want at home in one way or another on, on your TV set. But when I go to a movie, I like to go to a movie where it's fun to be in the theater with other people. So that's either sort of comedies. It's always good when people around you are laughing or the immersive kind of movies where there's lots going on and there's a big budget and there's a nice sound system and stuff happening. Uh, that can be stuff like, you know, science fiction or or adventure or that sort of thing. Do you ever go to um, movies where they um, get you to interact with it? Um, um, yeah, I don't like those. <laughs> no? Okay. Like sing -alongs? I want to be entertained. I don't want to be the entertainer when I go to a movie. <laughs> Fair enough. I have only been to a couple of those and I'm not, it was a bit weird, I think. Um, do you have any hobbies? So when... Uh... When I was younger, I used to do a lot of underwater photography. So that was doing scuba diving with, with cameras. 
these days that's morphed more into a uh, uh, travel. I like to travel and see different cultures and experience uh, different sorts of things. Uh, I also like to play cards, bridge, poker, that sort of thing. Do you ever travel to play um, cards? Uh, I haven't. I don't have a regular partner anymore. Oh, well, I guess I traveled to Las Vegas to play poker once in a while, if that counts. <laughs> I've just heard that people like travel to play bridge and things. I was wondering if you did a bit that did a bit of that. I, I used to do that. Mm -hmm. I used to travel uh, to tournaments. Uh, it's like any other sport. There's tournaments all over, sectionals and regionals and nationals, internationals. And there was a time when I did that a lot. I haven't done that much recently though. Mm, I mean, it's, I guess it's a little bit harder nowadays. Um, is there anything that's influenced you and your work? So when I was. Uh, when I was growing up, when I was a kid, it was the 60s, and I was really into space, right? The, the astronauts were going up into space and eventually led to a moon landing, and that just absorbed me and, and kind of made me want to be a scientist uh, during all of that period. Uh, and at the same time, I was also interested in uh, things like Charles Darwin and the Galapagos Islands. and. Uh, I've always wanted to to go to the Galapagos, and finally, for my 60th birthday, we did. How was that? Oh, that was fantastic! It was it was absolutely great. My my wife was not sure she wanted to do any of that, but it was something I'd always wanted to do, and she wound up having a great time. There's nothing cuter than blue-footed boobies, I have to say. <laughs> what are those? Are they birds? So boobies are a bird. Um, and they're, uh, they, they don't spend a lot of time on the ground they're, They fish and around the Galapagos islands, there's a lot of good fishing for them, but when they're nesting, they come down and they, uh, their feet are, are this bright powder blue and, uh, to attract their mate, they do a silly kind of dance. And so the two, uh, boobies are, are dancing with these bright blue feet that they're waving and, uh, making a nest. And it's, it's very pretty. And one thing that's both good and bad about the Galapagos is that uh, the animal life is not afraid of people. So you can be you can be a foot away from from them, and uh, they don't care because they don't see you as a threat. You're not supposed to touch them by law, but you know it's uh, some people do. Mm. And they haven't learned to stay away from humans after all this time of I guess tourists coming to see them. No, because the humans aren't uh, hurting them, uh, and they're just a different animal that doesn't threaten them, so they basically ignore uh, people. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so, we'll, uh, so what is household management, and why is it important? Well, household management is a lot of different things, of course. There's many things that go into managing a household. But, but for me, the, uh, the way I look at household management professionally is I focus on the air part of it because uh, a house, a home is a separation between the inside and the outside. It's what uh, we do to protect us from wild animals, crazy people, uh, the weather, uh, mozzie, uh, you know, all sorts of things. So we want to manage that indoor environment to be what we choose it to be. And that's, that's kind of how I look at it. Mm-hmm. And what are some misconceptions that people have about household management? Well, so that the, the, the part that I deal with is you can't see air. 
So you don't think about it. Uh, you don't uh, appreciate that it could be uh, bad for you or, or not bad for you, and it looks sort of the same. Uh, the other thing is that uh, people often think that um, it's better uh, inside than outside and hide from um, the, the air that's outside. And certainly that's true sometimes, uh, but it's actually not true most of the time. And so that's kind of a misconception. Huh, so the indoor air is actually often worse than the outside air? Uh, usually. Ah, yes. so what's causing that? What's causing well, the uh, if you think about it, the indoor air came from outside. So if there's bad stuff in the outside air, it came inside, unless you've done something special like treat it with air cleaning. But if you don't do that, if it just comes in on its own, then you add the uh, pollutants that are generated indoors to that air. So all the, the stuff, and we can talk about what that stuff is, but all the stuff that you generate indoors gets added to it. So it generally makes the indoor air worse than the outdoor air. So what kind of stuff do we generate um, that pollutes the indoor air? All right. So there's several, uh, there are many sources that you have to have to think about. So uh, indoor air quality is really two things. One is a health component and one is sort of an odor component. Mm -hmm. The odor component is easiest one to appreciate because, of course, we can smell it. Most of the things that are bad for us health-wise, we are not good at sensing. But what are those things? Well, it turns out one of the biggest sources of contamination in your home is cooking. Mm. Uh, cooking generates lots of nasty stuff. That's why you want a cooker hood or a range hood, as we call it in the States, uh, uh, above it to, to uh, suck out all of that stuff. Uh, some materials uh, emit various chemicals. Formaldehyde is the most common chemical emitted. Uh, from manufactured wood products, typically, the cabinets that you may have in your home, but uh, glues and, and uh, solvents and things tend to have a lot of uh, formaldehyde. But probably the biggest source that we have in the home is particles. The little teeny particles that are way too small for you to see uh, get into our lungs and over time slowly cause uh, disease. And many, many processes generate particles. Cooking is one, but not the only one. Would some other ones be, I guess, microplastics or like sanding type, like, or what, what? Well, those things are them? generally very large particles mm -hmm. uh, compared to the kind that get into your lungs. So they, okay. they tend to fall out of the air rather quickly and not, and they don't do a lot of harm to you. So those are not major contaminants in the indoor air for, for us to, to breathe in. Okay. And what does breathing in these particles do to you? Well, if the particles are small enough, such that they can go very deep into your, into your lung, they can cause heart disease. They can cause all sorts of respiratory diseases. They basically get in and, and muck about with the alveoli, the little po pockets of air in, uh, that let the lungs do what they're supposed to do. If they're very large particles, they don't get that deep and, and um, you can cough them out or swallow them and they won't do any harm at all. Okay. Um, and how does um, air circulation affect um, air quality? Well, air circulation, there's really two parts to air circulation and they're kind of different things. One is 
just mixing the air that's there, moving the air from one part of the inside to, to another. And the second part is ventilation, which means bringing in outdoor air to replace the, the indoor air. And both of those have uh, different effects. Uh, the Moving the air about can have both a positive or negative effect depending on what's going on. Uh, for example, if you're bringing in air from a different part of the building that's that's uh, uncontaminated, that's fresher, and diluting what's in the space that you're in, that's a good thing. On the other hand, if you are taking air that may have infectious agents in them and uh, dumping it on somebody else, that can be a bad thing. It's almost always good uh, from an indoor air quality point of view to bring in outdoor air to dilute the contaminants that's in the indoor air. So things like opening windows and doors? Uh, opening windows and doors can be a, a very good thing, but uh, it kind of depends on what the weather is, since that can be a, could cost you a lot of energy if you need to heat or cool that air. And uh, depending on what's outside, if it happens to be a really bad time, it's very smoky or uh, something's going on outdoors, you may not want to open your, your doors and windows. But generally speaking, uh, if you're not thinking about the energy, more ventilation is good, is better. Okay. So what else can we do other than opening windows and doors to improve circulation in the home? Um, well, to improve circulation, we can use uh, mixing fans, sort of mm -hmm. the perhaps the big fans that you have to move air about in the summertime to, to keep you cool. Those move air about. But to improve indoor air quality, we can we can do more. We can use filters to filter out the particles. We can use air cleaners to take out the chemicals. Uh, these are all products that exist, and depending on you know the the climate and what the contaminants are, they can be a very good idea. Uh, the so other thing you... we can do. Oh, oh I was going to say, other how thing do we you... can do is. You go ahead. You go ahead. All right. The other thing we can do is use exhaust fans over the sources that we have indoors. For example, the, the, over the stove to exhaust out the cooking particles in uh, bathrooms or wet rooms to get rid of moisture and chemicals that, and odors that can be generated there. So if you remove those from those spaces before they can mix, that's better. So you were saying that with um, the um, filters, that uh, depending on what's in the room, you use different things. So how do you know what you need? Uh, well, generally speaking, it's a good idea to have uh, particle filters if you have uh, a closed, uh, you know, a home without, with windows and doors where you're not leaving open all the time because uh, particles are probably the most uh, serious uh, health hazard. And these are just uh, filters that blow air through uh, media you know, it can uh, looks like folded paper usually mm -hmm. that um, takes the particles out of the air. And that's one of the best things you can do. There's plenty of products you can buy to either stick in a system that has a forced air or room size ones that you can just plug into the wall. Okay. So um, what do you recommend in houses or apartments where there is no um, already pre-installed air circulation system, like an air con or something? Well, so air conditioning doesn't necessarily mean that you have, you're getting fresh air. It can just be recirculating the air. The most important thing to do first is to get enough outdoor air in. And 
pretty much all of the Western countries have standards that are similar that tell you kind of how much fresh air you need. And you can get that from a variety of ways. You can get that through exhaust fans. You can get that through air circulators. You can get it through opening windows as, as well. That's So the first thing to do is to look at the way that you're getting fresh air and make sure you get enough of that. Mm -hmm. That's usually the best and cheapest way to improve your indoor air quality. Okay. And what about dehumidifiers or vaporizers? Are they good or is it depending on the situation? Well, it certainly depends on the situation. Um, one of the problems you can get in, in your household is mold. And that happens when the, uh, when the indoor air, which contains moisture, bumps into something that's, that's cooler and the moisture comes out of the air, turns into liquid and mold grows in it. And if you're up in a tropical climate, uh, it's, the outdoor air has lots and lots of moisture. And if you cool the indoor air through an air conditioning system, uh, you have to be very careful because you're probably going to risk getting mold. In those kind of situations, you probably de need dehumidification to keep that from happening. And you'll also find it more comfortable when you, when you do that. Humidification is a very tricky thing because we, as humans, we like the a relative humidity in a, in a moderate band. And if it's too dry, it's uncomfortable. But it gets too dry in, typically, we're talking about cold climates. If we're talking about a desert climate, a humidifier might be fine. But if we're talking about a cold climate, if you start adding moisture to, that, to the air, all that moisture has to go somewhere. And it's going to go find the coldest spot it can. It's going to turn it to liquid and nasty things are going to happen. So um, it's really difficult and not usually a good idea to humidify in a cold climate. Ah, oh, interesting. I find that people um, really like using vaporizers in winter when they've got colds. Um, but maybe that's making it worse or just creating a bigger problem later on. Well, it's creating a potential problem. Uh, mm -hmm. It's good for them. It's good for your lungs. Uh -huh. It's good for your throat. We like the moderate humidities better. But where is that uh, humidity going is, is a question. And you may be growing mold where you don't want it when, when you do that. That's why you have to be very careful. Mm. Um, I guess we'll just have to um, keep an eye out for that if you do use the vaporizers. Um, so does ventilation and air circulation affect disease, um, affect the spread of some diseases? Oh, yes, it, it certainly can. There are many airborne diseases like COVID-19 is an airborne disease. Many respiratory diseases um, have an airborne component. And when you have an airborne disease like COVID, uh, it's the, the virus is traveling on teeny little droplets of, of water, basically, flying around. And uh, you, you want to get them out of the air as soon as you can uh, before they uh, land on somebody else. And the same filters that can take ordinary particles can take these kind of particles too. So the, the virus won't do any harm when it gets stuck in a, in a filter. It's going to die before anything like that happens. So uh, HVAC, either through air cleaning or diluting through ventilation, can definitely reduce the risk of airborne diseases like COVID. What does HVAC stand for? Uh, heating, ventilating, and air conditioning. Okay. So that's sort of the equipment that you have in your home or, or any building 
that provides you the thermal environment and the indoor air quality environment that, that you need. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? So, well, I think it's, it's, it's important uh, to remember that you can't always tell that you have good indoor air quality or bad indoor air quality. It's a, it's a chronic sort of disease. It's going to take many, many years to show up. It's not like uh, an infectious disease or uh, an acute thing that you're going to know right away that something happens. So it's just a very good idea to have built into your home or any building the systems that will take care of it for you without having to think about it. So to make sure you get enough ventilation, and if you want to go beyond that to do things like filtering the particles out of the air and have it kind of happen without having to pay attention. It's not like, let's say, a thermostat when you know when you're cold or you know when you're hot, you're going to do something about it. Here, you really don't know when you're being exposed to uh, contaminants that you shouldn't be. Is there a way to test your um, the air in your home, or is it better just to have these measures in as a preventative? Uh, yes, both those things are true. Uh, it is possible to to test the quality of the air. There's all sorts of things, both research grade and um, and and consumer grade. Uh, but it's better. Uh, uh, to just make, take care of it by, by following the standards. Uh, I, I will say that there are some things out there that are sold to tell you what the indoor air quality is that, that don't. And uh, you, you sort of have to be aware of what you're getting when you buy these things. There, there's two measures that are really easy to do. And so you can get equipment relatively cheap that do them, but they don't really tell you very much. One of those things is a carbon dioxide um, meter. Uh, carbon dioxide at the, at the levels found inside buildings generally is not a dangerous thing at all. It's a very normal thing. But you can use it to tell how much ventilation you have uh, typically per person because we emit carbon dioxide at a relatively known rate. And so you can know how much dilution there is if you measure it. So simply having... Uh, so getting the carbon dioxide below some arbitrary number doesn't necessarily improve your indoor air quality. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that's sometimes done is, is a thing called TVOC, total volatile organic compounds. This is a thing which measures a whole bunch of chemicals and kind of adds them up and gives you a number. The, the problem is it's really can't tell the difference between chemicals that are bad for you, like formaldehyde and things that are worse, versus chemicals that, that uh, aren't bad for you at the levels, like, like ethanol. Uh, so if you had one of these things in your room and you, and, and you took a drink, you would see it go off the charts, but really it wouldn't, wouldn't be any worse for you than it was before because at those concentrations, ethanol is, is, is harmful. There's harmless. So uh, you have to be careful when you are looking at those sort of consumer-grade items that some of them aren't what you want, but some of them can be quite good. So I know that carbon monoxide is something that's quite dangerous. Um, is will um, HVAC machine uh, will they help with that as all those types of issues, or is that uh, carbon too monoxide is is carbon monoxide is toxic. Mm -hmm. It's toxic in the short term. You don't need very much of it uh, to to have a problem, but you should never have any of it being generated. Mm -hmm. That only happens when you have some sort of combustion device that's uh, not 
uh, behaving correctly or that's been put under some sort of stress. Uh, um, you know, a car that's in a closed garage will generate carbon monoxide. If you have a um, natural gas equipment that's completely broken, out of tune, or or not uh, connected correctly, you can get carbon monoxide. So you don't look at the HVAC system to protect you from that because you just shouldn't have it to begin with. If you have such a problem, um, you have to deal with it. That's why uh, in many places in here in California, you have to have a carbon monoxide alarm in your home. Um, and if it goes off, something's seriously wrong and you should go figure it out. Yeah, I guess it's also similar to like a gas leak where if something's happening, you just need to know right now and you need to get out. That's right. Mm. Okay, interesting. Um, is there something that you, is there a practice that you do in your own home to manage your air quality? So in my own home, I have a mechanical ventilation system, a very simple one, just an extract fan that uh, exhausts air uh, at, at a known rate. And of course, then the air comes in from outside somewhere. And I also have a filtration system in, in my HVAC. Uh, here in California, it's very common to have a forced air system where you have a furnace and an air handler that circulates air within the home. And I've uh, retrofitted that to put in a four inch wide filter that kicks particles out. And it's, uh, and I don't, uh, as I said, I don't like to think about it. It just, it just does it all by itself. So it's, it's not a terribly burdensome thing. Uh, I used a really large filter so that I only have to change it once a year. So it's not a particularly bad thing. And that's, that's what I do. It's pretty, pretty simple. There, there are other people who do more complex stuff if they want. Mm -hmm. And do you think everyone should do this? Uh, I, I think it's, uh, the short answer is yes, but there, there are exceptions. Um, we know you need a certain amount of ventilation and everybody's home should have that minimum amount of ventilation. And if they want more, that's okay too. And uh, we know that particles are the biggest health hazard indoors. And so adding a filter is uh, a really good idea for your long-term health. And by the way, it'll also catch those particles like that COVID rides on that other infectious aerosols ride on. So it has a win-win uh, situation in that. So I, I recommend that to anybody who asks me. Do you have a recommendation for, or what should you be looking for in a product that is removing um, the particles from the air? Oh. So if you're buying a standalone product, like a, mm -hmm. something you plug in and do for a room, uh, the, the normal thing is to have what's called a HEPA filter, H-E-P-A. So th that's a very, very good filter that will filter out almost all of the particles. That's, that's the base of what you need. And then you simply have to know how much airflow goes through that machine. More is better, of course. And there's various sizing recommendations depending on the size of your house the manufacturers will 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 tell you what those recommendations are then there's a bunch of other things that you can add to those most of those aren't worth adding in in most cases there's things that will ultraviolet lights and and um fancy catalysts and and things like that that don't add much if you have the basic filter you're doing pretty well. And uh, some of those technology, all those fancier technologies have not been proven to be 
safe and effective, and there's really no reason to stretch to to do that. Okay, that's good to know. Um, and how do you think it impacts on your on your life and um, on your on your home, your practice? You mean me personally or generally? Both, personally and then generally. Well, so I have an old home. It's kind of leaky and inefficient. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do these things and maybe I don't need to because it's leaky enough that I get in a lot of fresh air. But it, in modern homes, they're getting tighter. They're getting more well insulated. They're getting much better over time. And you really need to take care to make sure you get enough ventilation. Whereas once we didn't have to worry about that, what we had to worry about was... Uh, too much air and having to pay the energy costs. Uh, but now we can build homes that uh, don't do that. And so you have to make sure that you get a good indoor environment when you when you do that. And it, it will pay off in the long run. It, it's not that you're going to see uh, an effect in, in a week, a month, or a year, but, but your overall health, everybody's overall health is going to get better because these chronic things are just going to go down. Heart disease, uh, respiratory diseases, those are just going to go down as we have uh, better indoor environments. So you mentioned that um, older houses are leakier. Does that mean that you don't have to worry so much if you have an old leaky house um, for ventilation and indoor air quality? Well, if it's leaky enough, you don't have to worry from that standpoint. Uh, the, the problem about a leaky house is that uh, it's driven by the weather. Mm -hmm. So it's it's leakiest, it, the most air when the weather is the worst outside. So it's the least comfortable and the most energy inefficient. And when it's really calm and nice outside, maybe you're still not getting enough air. That's why having a, a design system, usually a mechanical system that kind of gives you the same air all the time, is uh, makes a lot more sense. Um a house that's leaky enough not to have to worry about is going to be an energy hog. It's going to use up environmental resources. It's going to be expensive to heat and cold, and it's still not going to be very comfortable uh, because of the drafts and the cold spots and things. So it's definitely worth having a high-performing house and then controlling the indoor environment. This was something that I did wonder about. I live in a, an, an apartment that it's quite, is there's cracks in the wall the uh, doors aren't very good at um, keeping everything sealed. So during the bushfires that we had a couple years ago, um, the government advised us all to stay inside. But I did sort of wonder if it was actually effective at, at stopping the air from coming in and what the difference would be from the inside air quality and the outside air quality. Right. So uh, a home can protect you for short periods of time from really bad outside air because it's not, if you're closing your doors and windows, very little of it's getting in. Mm -hmm. And uh, also the, the fires, and we've had, we've had the same kind of fires here in California. Uh, the, the fires are really big and nasty particles that, um, that will fall out. But for those kind of, I put in this filtration system for the fires more than anything else, because mm. when we had them here, and uh, there was a day where there was no sun, but the sky was orange here, you know, and you may have had that just as, as well mm. in, in Australia. And I had, I have sensors to tell me what the particles are inside and outside. And I knew that my inside environment was very much better because I had these filters running all the time and I had them running uh, full speed. So 
we very much were safer inside. But without those, it's only short-term protection. Uh, and if you've got days and days of the fires, um, the best you can do is be inside, but that's not necessarily very good. That's good to know because um, I have no doubt that this will continue to be a problem for the future. Um, so I think, yeah, it will def indeed. definitely be important to get some of those filters, I think, particularly before the next bushfire season, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, well, we've got some questions from the audience as well. Um, so our first question is, um, what is the difference between an air humidifier and an air purifier? So those two do very different jobs. Mm -hmm. So a humidifier is just there to add moisture to the air. And as we said, that can be a very dangerous thing to do sometimes. Mm. A purifier is generally something that's then to take stuff out of the air, to clean the air. And those are the particle filters that we're talking about, although there's a, a variety of things that fall under the category of air purifier. And um, the, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has a couple of really good publications about uh, air purifiers, and they can talk about the different kinds and what's good and not good and things you should look for. Okay. Um, I think I'll have to find a link for that, um, and we'll put it in the show notes for people to have a look at. Um, is it beneficial to have a, humid a dehumidifier in the house, especially in a humid climate? Uh, it is. Yeah. Uh, it, when the inside environment is humid, it feels warmer. We're talking about the warm end of the spectrum. And so you need to uh, take the temperature down to be cooler, to feel cooler. And uh, the net effect is going to be that uh, you're going to get mold somewhere mm. uh, or a tendency to do it. Now, it depends on what uh, the building is constructed with. If it's constructed with stone and glass and hard surfaces, it's uh, mold is not such a problem, but if it's constructed with wood and plaster and paper, uh, then you can get a lot of mold. So a uh, dehumidifier is usually a, a good thing in a humid climate. Okay. Um, and our last question is, um, are there any signs of bad indoor air quality? Well, see, as I mentioned before, it's really hard for us to sense bad indoor air quality. If, if let's say something like formaldehyde is so concentrated that you can smell it, it's really, really bad. And so it, it, it's hard to, to do that. But mm -hmm. uh, so no, there's no easy way to do it. There are, you can buy little sensors uh, that'll tell you how much, um, uh, let's say, particles there are in the air and whether it's in a good range or a bad range. You can tell if you get a CO2 sensor, you can tell if you're getting enough ventilation air so they're, they're indirect things that you can do, but it's hard to know right away unless we're talking about odors because people can sense odors. Hmm. Um, so now we're going to do the open mic section. So that's where you get to talk about um, something that you're passionate about and it doesn't have to be related to our topic today. Um, and you said you wanted to do um, human sociobiology. Was that right? Yes, yes, that's, that's what I said. So... Um, mm -hmm. When I was in university, one of the things that one of the books that I read was a book called The Naked Ape. And uh, that that book talked about how the human animal existed. So, you know, we, we understand that we're all animals and we've evolved, but um, we don't 
feel connected in the same way. So how did we how did we get there? How did we get to be who we are? And that book had some interesting ideas in it, but um, it, it it piqued my interest, but didn't answer my questions. Uh, in the last, let's say, ten years, uh, sort of, and, and more so once I retired and it became sort of my retirement hobby, I looked into this uh, a bit more again. And there, um, there is a scientist, um, Edward O. Wilson, who wrote, who is the father of what's called sociobiology, about how animals act in in hypersocial groups. Like uh, his specialty was ants. Uh, so an ant colony uh, is almost an individual rather than a colony because everybody's working for the for the good of the colony. And there's a lot of examples of those kinds of animals, mostly insects, that are uh, that social. Uh, and, um, uh, and I was looking into it and I, I realized that that's what made us human or what's what made us humans be who we are. There have been many species of humans in the last two and a half million years, uh, but the ones we are, um, according to my research, is only uh, 72,000 years old. And uh, since we made this transition to be a sociobiology kind of species, and it's all, I found it all very interesting. So I, that's what I've been sort of spending my nonfiction-y hobbies on uh, in the last several years. Gosh, what a hobby that is. And you said that you're thinking of writing a book? Yes, because uh, I, so I, when I was reading all this stuff, um, I concluded that we must be what's called a eusocial animal like ants, but in a very different way. And that smarter people than I should have figured that out. And so I started looking for all these books of people who have figured it out. And nobody really did figure it out. Um, so uh, they figured out various aspects of it, which were very useful. So I was thinking maybe I should write a book about uh, how this works. And I was, I was about to do that when COVID broke out. And then I became very involved in um, helping uh, you know, react to the COVID uh, story. I don't know if you remember, but in the beginning, the the uh, public health people were saying it wasn't airborne. That you know we should wash our hands and uh, and do all those sorts of uh, sorts of things that we would normally do. The that called universal precautions, but that we didn't have to worry about the air so much. But to those of us who understood uh, aerosols and uh, air transport, it was very very clear very, very early that uh, COVID was principally uh, an airborne transmitted disease. And so we, we, several of us got together, a lot of us got together and focused on how, how to get that message across and what you should do, what people should do to try to mitigate the problem. So sort of from, I guess, April 2020 till just a few months ago, I've been very busy with, with COVID. This might be a slight divergence, but this is my own personal interest, I guess. Um, right at the beginning, everyone said that masks didn't do anything. And um, now we have lots of protests about this still. Um, do masks do anything? So uh, so the answer to that is is nuanced. Mm -hmm. So there, there's several transmission modes. 
And you can think of the ones through the air as being short range and long range, but there's no hard dividing line. You know, they've talked about two meters as being a magic distance. There's no magic distance. Uh, when, when you cough uh, or talk for that matter, you're emitting little balls of water all the time and in all sorts of various sizes. And the bigger ones, the bigger droplets fall to the ground. Um, and the bigger they are, the sooner they fall. The smallest ones don't fall to the ground. They stay in the air and they, and they mix. Uh, and so masks can do two things. One of which is they can impact the ballistic transport. In other words, those balls that are flying through the air that are going to fall out of the air. But in the meantime, they're falling. Um, they're, they're following uh, like a football through the air um, and they're moving. Now, a mask can stop those. They can block them and, and absorb them. And that can either be from on the emitter or the receiver. So it can't fly into your mouth or it can't fly out of your mouth into somebody else. And almost any kind of mask will do that. Um, but the smallest particles aren't quite affected so much. Even if they're blocked by the mask, they'll go around and they'll still be in a cloud. In order to get the smallest kind, you need what are called N95 masks. So these are masks that can filter the smallest particle out. And they have to be worn carefully. These are the masks that uh, medical professionals wear. And they have to be sealed around the edges so they don't leak, so that all the air goes in and out. An N95 mask does a lot. It, in fact, reduces by roughly 95% the amount of stuff that goes in and out. But just a simple cloth mask or even a good mask that's not worn well doesn't have nearly so much of an effect. So that's the science. Now, the public policy is a different question. How much of an effect in normal case is appropriate for requiring people to wear a mask or volunteering to wear a mask? That's politics. That's not science. So you have to decide that. Mm. And of course, wearing a mask uh, does have some negatives. Um, my wife is slightly hard of hearing and she relies on lip reading to help. Can't read people's lips when they when they have a mask. For that matter, even if you're not that hard of hearing, it dulls people's speech when, when they wear a mask. The, the uh, wearing a mask may make your skin irritated and, and cause uh, some skin problems. If you uh, are asthmatic or have breathing problems, the extra resistance can be. So there are many positives and many negatives, and um, it's going to be up to uh, the people who decide policy as to where to draw the line. It's, it will always reduce your risk to wear a mask. Mm. Is that a new, You have to decide if that's good enough when you're in yourself. You're immune compromised. It's going to be a big issue for you personally. But does that mean that everybody has to wear a mask? And how much community spread? These are all really good questions that I don't have the answer for. Thank you. Sorry for the divergence. I just um, thought that while you were there, I could ask a question that I've been wondering sure, about. No problem. Um, did you want to talk a little bit more about your book? You said... Well, um, it's, mm -hmm. I could. I, I could because... It's, it's, it's great fun to me because I learned a lot of stuff. And that's why, that's why I was engaged in it, because I was learning it. Mm -hmm. um, for example, uh, this is an interesting thing that, gets, uh, that would get a, lot of, a certain group of people really annoyed. Uh, 
you know, we're part of the great apes. Humans are part of the great apes, like gorillas and orangutans and our closest relatives of the chimpanzee. And each one has a sort of uh, different eating habits. They were, each one is in a different niche. The uh, gorillas are vegetarians. They're, they're, they're ruminants. They, they eat leaves and, and things like that. All, all primates have to eat fruit. Uh, so everybody's fruit, but what else do you eat? Uh, uh, chimpanzees are the most uh, omnivorous, but we got, uh, we became special. We grew to be our own species, humans, by being the carnivores of the, the great apes. So uh, we started our evolution because we came out of the trees and learned to eat meat. And so meat is very much part of our natural diet. So I, I sometimes have to giggle when uh, a, a certain kind of people says it's, oh, so much more natural just to eat raw vegetables. Well, no, that's almost exactly wrong because um, we learn to eat meat and we also learn to cook our food because in order to be uh, carnivores, we had to be on the move. We didn't have a long time to digest. And uh, we learned to use fire early and to cook our food, both our meats and our vegetables, to make the calories much more accessible to us. So, um, so that I, I found that, that uh, very interesting. Uh, um, there's a lot of other interesting things like um, how difficult it is for women to give birth in humans, whereas in other apes, it's not. And it's because there is a, uh, a genetic, an evolutionary push to keep the pelvis smaller so you can run because humans are very good at running. That's, that's what we did. We, we moved and we ran. And uh, it's not a problem for men. They can have a smaller pelvis. But for women, it's, it's a bit of a problem. And right now, it's, it's this sort of compromising position where it's as small as it can be and still more or less give birth to babies. That's so. that's funny. I wouldn't think that humans are that good at running, though. I feel like there are lots of animals that are better at running. I'm, maybe I'm just like horses. Well, so uh, th this is the interesting thing. Um, it depends what you define as running. A, a cheetah can run almost 100 miles an hour, but for 15 seconds. What makes humans the best runners in the world is our cooling system. We can mm -hmm. sweat. And in fact, that's how we hunted animals. It's not that we were fast like a cheetah because we don't have teeth and claws like a cheetah to take down an animal when we get there. What, uh, what we do or did, since we now have more modern ways to do it, is we would just chase animals until they overheated and fell down. And then we would hit them with rocks and sticks because we can run a long, long time because we have a very good cooling system. We sweat well. Um, and that's why we also need a lot more water than other uh, primates, because we sweat a lot. So marathon running is um, the original hunting method. Uh, ex exactly. So, uh, and uh, I don't think, you know, I mean, there are birds who can stay aloft for a very long time, but there are very few land animals who can um, run as long as we can. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you. I've definitely learned a lot today. Um, and I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing your book one day. 
Yes, I'll get around to it uh, mm -hmm. soon enough. My problem is I hate reading what I write. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe um, find a couple people who are really interested in the topic as well and see if they'll read it for you. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that'll, be a good, that'll be a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll do that. Or I'll just publish it as a vanity publication and never read it myself. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Great. Um, if people want to find out more about you, um, is there a place that they can go? Um, so uh, they can contact me through my laboratory address, which is mhsherman at lbl.gov. I'm still a retired uh, scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Um, and uh, at, at that website, I also have a, a website about me, so you can uh, under the people section of the lbl.gov uh, website, you can find me and, and learn something more uh, about me. Great. And I'll um, put, we'll put those links in the show notes so people can find them a bit more easily. Um, thank you for joining me here today. It was really great to talk to you. Uh, you're quite welcome. You've been listening to On the House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and any other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, sharing, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people to find it so we can grow and continue to bring you quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.